I'm just going to confess, I love the energy in the room. I, I love the spirit that is here and the worship that we're experiencing together, and I'm so grateful that you've chosen to be with us today. In fact, today I've gotten to see some people that I haven't gotten to see in a while because they've chosen to be cautious and, and not present on campus, but now they're coming back. And I just want you to know what it does to encourage my spirit. We're in a series where we're looking at an ancient document known as the letter or the first letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthian church. And we've been going through this, and we've got scripture journals available, and if you don't have one of those yet, we'd love for you to have one of those as we follow along and really seek to apply God's Word. And we're calling it a beginner's guide because in many ways, after what we've experienced around the world and in our country and in our personal lives, with all the upset of 2020 and this year, uh, it's like we're going back to the beginning again. And I've been so grateful because so many of you have sent me text messages and emails and made a phone call saying, Scott, we're loving the series. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so encouraged by the series. It is, I love what we're learning here. Well, that probably comes to an end today. <laughs> We're in a part of 1 Corinthians that I really wish I'd read the whole book before we started preaching the series. No, I read the whole thing. And I realized that there is some important things for us to learn, both as a church and as those of you that may still be seeking and deciding whether or not you're going to follow Jesus. And we're about to get into that portion of the Corinthian letter. And so there's going to be some very pointed things that Paul says, the author of this letter. There's going to be some very things that we need to listen to, and you're going to want to push back. Wherever you fall on the spectrum, you're going to want to push back at some point because Paul's going to get down to some nitty-gritty things that I believe we need to hear, and if you would at least be open to hearing them, I believe there's a blessing as you consider. Now, there may be a reaction at the very beginning. You want to push back and say, no, no, no. But I want you to at least be open to hearing what God has for us to say. We believe that we serve a loving God. And as a loving God, we want to be open to what He is saying to us. Because even though it may not seem that way, or you've had a different life experience that tells you differently, God is for you. Let's dive in. I want to read it straight through first, and then we'll come back and, and dissect it a little bit. And I'll do some teaching from it, some takeaways. But I want you to just hear this portion. Because when this was originally read, it would have been read to the entire congregation, to the entire church at the same time. They would have said, oh, we've received a letter from Paul. And they would have gathered in their worship. And we estimate that it would have been about 30 to 40 people. And then they would have read through this letter as an encouragement to them. And they came to this part. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Imagine sitting in church hearing these words. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have to do with judging out for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let us stand and sing. Seriously, put yourself in the place of that church at that time. And I don't know what first century squirming in the pew looked like, but they were squirming. So as with any portion of Scripture, one of the things that I always want to encourage you to do is ask a few questions of Scripture. What does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about ourselves? So what I would like to do is I'd like to walk back through this and address the tension that's at the core of this passage. Because this is one of the most difficult things for the church to handle. And it's the tension between two things that we, both, that we believe in both of them, but oftentimes it seems like they're going to come in conflict with each other. And here's the two things, grace and truth. It is incredibly difficult for us as a people to hold on to both grace and truth. Now, what's strange is it seems like Jesus had no problem holding on to grace and truth. He could fully embrace grace and he could fully cling to truth. And that did not seem to upset him. For us, it drives us crazy. We don't do this well often. For Jesus, he can encounter the woman that was caught in the very act of adultery. And then when everybody else has a stone ready to take her life, pass judgment on her, carry out the execution right there. He speaks in such a way that dismisses the crowd and they begin to leave. And then he looks at her and says, where are the ones that are accusing you? And she says, they're gone. And he says, then neither do I accuse you. There's grace. And then he says, but no longer sin. Leave your life. Go forward. There's the truth. And Jesus had no difficulty hanging on to both of those. But we do. Some of you have stories of a church or a situation at church where you received 
all the truth, but none of the grace. And now it seems like we're coming into a season in the life, at least in our culture in this country, and it's inside churches as well, where we have all the grace, but none of the truth. We just don't do this well. And this is a challenge. I've said often in this series, one of the things that challenges me most about this is that I believe that our dynamics in our culture are more similar to the first century dynamics when this letter was written than any century in between. And so out of these next coming lessons, you're going to think that, that I got these off of Reddit and not from Scripture. They're going to seem that relevant because they're going to speak right into where we are as a church, as a people, as a people trying to follow what Jesus is calling us to live out. So let's dive into this. Chapter 5. Start taking part verse 1 and 2. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just teach my way through this this morning. And so we're going to do a section. We're going to wonder what does God want us to learn from this section And then I'll give you a couple of things that I believe Scripture teaches us from this section, and we're just going to move through this. At some point, there's going to be one of the pieces that I believe you're going to latch on to and say, okay, that's for me. And at some point, there's probably going to be one that you disagree with. But I'm trying to unfold Scripture as best as I can as we wrestle with this grace and this truth and try to hold on to both. Chapter 1, I mean, chapter 5, verse 1. He starts out, It's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Okay, pause just for a second. Let's understand the environment that Paul is writing into. He's writing into the the city of Corinth, and Corinth was a a, um, multinational city. It was a major port. It was the crossroads. It, It was significant, and with that, you had all the influences that came from around the world. You know, it it was a international type city. And if you were to go to the ruins of the the Corinth now, ancient Corinth, you can see up on, there's this massive outcropping of rock. And up on the hill were all these temples to the, the gods they served and Aphrodite being one of them. And part of that practice was the temple employed temple prostitutes. And part of the worship was to engage with these prostitutes. And it reported, it depends on who you read, but it reported there could have been as many as a thousand of these prostitutes engaged and available in Corinth. This is the culture that Paul writes into. And then he says, but there's a sexual immorality among you that's not even among the pagans. You guys have taken it to a whole new level. And he tells us what it is. For a man has his father's wife. We're not really sure how to interpret all of this. But what most likely is, is he is now in a relationship with his stepmom. And this is not going to stand. Verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. They were in a situation where they saw it going on. And so in this wrestle between grace and truth, they took the approach 
okay, well, we're just going to be grace. We're, we're just going to assume that grace is going to cover everything. Now, anytime you enter into a behavior or a habit that violates or goes against your core belief, one of two things has to change, the behavior or the belief. You are not wired to hold on to a belief and a behavior that are in complete disconnect. Now, at first, as you engage in something you're not supposed to be involved in, you'll dabble in there for a while, but you cannot exist there long term. And what happens to most people is that they don't end up believing their way out of God. They end up behaving their way out of God. And then at some point, the behavior, the belief has to catch up to the behavior, and they actually change how they believe. I believe that's what's going on in this church. They've hit a point where we don't know how to deal with this, and so we're going to say grace covers everything. And then the belief catches up to the behavior, and now an arrogance sits in. We're so open-minded. We're so tolerant of it. We're smart. We're intelligent. We're too sophisticated for this. And Paul says, shouldn't you rather mourn? And then he says, let remove the man that's doing this. And this is where we get into church discipline. This is going to make everybody uncomfortable. Okay? Me too. I'm right there with you. But I believe there's some things, if you would walk with me through this, I think one of the things that I think we need to hear in our culture today that that we can take from this is, There is a godly sexual standard and is not determined by your feelings. So understand what Paul's doing. Paul is reaching into this community of believers and he's saying, there is something out of bounds and you're playing out of bounds right now. And we live in a world where all the boundaries keep getting taken down. And so it is not a popular message. It is not politically correct. But our sexual ethic in our culture cannot be driven by the simple philosophy as it only takes two consenting adults. You had two consenting adults in this situation. And so what Paul is letting know is that there is a sexual standard that God is calling us to and there is something out of bounds and it doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter how you think about it. It is outside of ourselves and it is not to be determined by me or by you. But Paul is calling us to this one that exists outside of ourselves and an absolute truth. Now, we're going to get into some nitty-gritty of, of how this plays out in future sermons. But we need to start with this truth. Paul is calling them to something and saying what you're, what you're permitting right now is not acceptable. And there is, a, there is a standard to which he will not tolerate you to fall to. Second truth is this. This is where we get into the church discipline stuff. Your faith... It's intensely personal, but it is not private. We live in a world where we want to determine everything by myself. And if I start veering off, I can easily go to the defense. Well, it's not your business. That's my life. It's not your business. That's my life. 
and what is true inside the community of faith, the body of Christ that we call the church is, yes, my faith is very personal to me, but God never designed your faith to be private, meaning nobody else has an opportunity or a right or should even be expected to speak into your life. This is the power of the community when we come together that I don't keep myself walled off and I'll say, you keep your distance, I'll keep mine. We'll come together, we'll sing some songs together, and then we'll go our separate ways. That is not Paul's definition of church, and that's not what Jesus had in mind either. But that we are in a shared life together where you speak into my life and I speak in, into yours each of us, all of us under the lordship of Jesus, all of us guided by Scripture. And we speak truth. It's not intended to be private. And so often in America, we want to get with this pushback that says, none of your business. And Paul would say, oh, but it is. This is why he's calling this church to say, you guys, you need to come around and need to speak into his life. Paul goes on with this, picking up in verse, verse 3. For though absent the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now what Paul's doing here, he's, he's saying, I'm not there, but you need to pay attention because my authority extends to there. And I'm going to speak into this now. So as if I was sitting with you, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And so much of this makes us uncomfortable. Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are too. And boy, Paul, could you have said it differently than this? You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I would love to bring you only a message that doesn't have harsh words in them. Those are some pretty harsh words. At least initially when they land on me, they're going, what do we do with that? What Paul is calling for is he saying, you need to remove yourself from him. He needs to be out of the church. You cannot permit this to go on. Now, I know for many of us, our anxiety levels are already rising. Because this is not, we're, we're not comfortable with this. Because we want to be an open and a welcoming and a gracious church. But what Paul is saying is, You've got somebody that bears the name of Jesus. And they're not living that way. And so it is time to step back from them. Now, one of the places where this is really hard for us to get our minds around it is the fact that our situation here, at least in this country, is so different. Because when you think about it playing out itself out here, that person, all they do is they go down the road. They go to the next church. That's not the opportunity available to them in Corinth. They were a part of the only church of Jesus in that city. And so what Paul is calling for is, is there is 
the new creation that God is creating inside of his people. And there is a body of believers coming together and they are worshiping together and they are being encouraged together. And then there's everything else that's outside of that. And it stands in a great contrast, and that's called the world, or in this part, the, the area that Satan has. You know, throw him over to the realm of Satan, let him exist outside. It's kind of like inside, we've got nice warmth and heat and shelter. You need to throw him out where there, none of that exists. But notice how Paul ends it, okay? So that, now... He doesn't say so that he'll be punished, so that, that you can feel better because you scolded him, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul is saying he needs to experience what it's like not to have the church. And this is hard for some of us to imagine because we don't see the church this way. Experience was not to have that, and it is redemptive in purpose and transformative. So here's the takeaway. Grace is both redemptive and transformative. Grace redeems, and it transforms. So are you saved by grace? Yes. But that grace does not simply leave you where it finds you, but through the incredible power of the Spirit of God, your life becomes transformed more and more into the image. And so what Paul's calling for is step back from him so he experiences what it's like without. That's a wake-up call for him. And then he can be redeemed. In fact, if you go into 2 Corinthians... In 2 Corinthians, there's a passage where it may be referring to this man. Or it may not. It doesn't matter because what Paul is doing is he's talking about someone that they have, that they have set outside the church. And he says, they've repented. It's time to let them back in now. It's time. This was never meant to be punitive. It was meant to be redemptive and transformative. And so it's time to allow them back in. That's what Paul wants. And we have to understand, especially for any time the church has as a call to this, this is done with tears in your eyes and a broken heart. This is not done with a finger wag and an I told you so. And some of you, I know you've experienced that. That's not what Paul's describing. So he goes on, picking up verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Now he's going to talk about their attitude towards this. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be, that you may be a new lump. Now, I just love it. What are you and Jesus? You're a new lump. So if you ever start thinking really big of yourself, just remember you're a lump. Okay, You're a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Okay, a little background here. He's using some metaphors that would have been very familiar to them. And in the Passover celebration, what they're celebrating is the fact that years and centuries and generations ago, 
when they were slaves in Egypt, there was the night called the Passover. And the angel of the Lord was going to come into all the homes that did not have the blood of the lamb uh, painted on the doorpost. And where it saw the blood, it passed over. Where it didn't, it took the life of the firstborn child. It was a holocaust on that night. To prepare for this night, the slaves, the Israelite slaves, put together a meal. And since bread and baking takes time for the, the yeast to go to work and you allow it to rise, this needed to be a quick meal, a rapidly prepared meal. And so they prepared it without leaven. And so for centuries and centuries, even all the way up today, the Jewish people practice Passover and the leaven... That which causes rise is removed, and so it's an unleavened bread. And so what he's saying is, you're using a leaven that came before Christ did his work. He's now the sacrificial lamb. He's now the one whose blood is spread over our lives and, and protecting us from our own sin. He says, that's the work that he's doing. And so he's calling us to this. And so he's saying, don't go back... To the old, you are, you are a new person. You've been totally redeemed. So, there's a few things that I want, want you to take away from this. If you would, go ahead and jump to the slide when you claim the name of Jesus. When you claim the name of Jesus, you assume the life. Of Jesus. When you claim the name, you assume the life. And that's what he's telling them. Saying, I want you to live out this life because you've claimed the name. That's why it was sinful for this man to live this way. That's the problem that was in the church. Because if you notice, he's, go, he's about to get into a section where he goes back and forth and it gets really confusing. Okay? So, I'm going to ask, go back with me, just a few verses, and I'm going to go to verse 11. I'm sorry, let's go to verse, um, uh, back up to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, okay, not... Watch what he does here. Not at all mean the sexually moral of this world. So wait, so we, we do or we don't associate. And so suddenly he draws a distinction. He says, not the ones that are out in the world, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He says, I'm not telling you to not associate with anybody that's ever committed a sin. He says, you would have to, to leave the world. He goes, that's not even possible. But he does draw a distinction. He says this, verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an adulterer, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you ought to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. It sounds like he's going back and forth. He's talking about how you hold grace and truth together. 
when you claim the name, you assume the life of Jesus. And when you claim the name, you don't get to mess around with the brand. You don't get to change life. And so he's saying, for those that have claimed the name, the rules, the standards are different. Stop judging people that are out in the world that have messed up, broken lives. Paul would say it this way, what do you expect them to have? And when he says judge each other, he's not saying judge with a scolding finger. It's more a sense of discern with one another. Like a parent would discern with their child, hey, this behavior, this doesn't lead to a good place. We need to talk. Or like a doctor would. You want your doctor to be well discerning. And when there's a disease or there's a medical condition that needs addressing, you want them to shoot straight with you and have a conversation that may be uncomfortable, but you need to have. That's what he's saying. When it's a brother to brother, sister to sister, somebody inside the church, two people have claimed the name, you get real honest with one another and you say, I just got to tell you, I'm hurting with what I'm seeing here. And he calls us to that. And then here's the last takeaway. You're a new creation, not a slightly improved version of the old. You're a new creation, not a slight. This is what he means. He says, stop going back and trying to use the old leaven. Stop hanging on to the old things. You're a new creation. Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You've been made to live like it. I've been wanting to give you some takeaways. As we approach the takeaways in just a second, I'm going to tell you a quick story. In World War II, January 1st, 1945, the German forces... Uh, brought their the ally their air force brought one of their their greatest offenses that they could muster and they deployed 900 planes in an attempt to totally decimate the allied air power they called it operation bolden plate 900 planes were committed to it they attacked january 1st because they figured that enough of the american pilots and the british pilots whatever would still be hung over from new year's eve celebration that before they destroyed 290 planes on the ground before anybody could even take off. It was a devastating blow. But in the process, they lost 200 of their own planes. Many of those pilots were captured. One of those pilots was Stephen Cole. And Major Bob Brookings brought Stephen Cole into his office for interrogation. And this was an arrogant young man. And he was proud of what his military forces had been able to do in destroying so many planes. And outside of Major Brookings' office, there was a window that looked out onto the airfield, and you could still see the smoldering wreckage of the planes that had been destroyed. This captured German pilot puts his feet up on the table, leans back and says, What do you think of that? And Major Brookings is so frustrated that he can't even talk to him and kicks him out of his office. And for the rest of the day and the rest of that week, that Stephen Cole, that German officer, just pranced around, taunted whatever his guards were, and just bragged about the superiority. Four days later, Major Brookings brings back into his office again 
He comes in arrogant. Brookham sets him down and he pulls back the curtains to his office window. And sitting on the runway were 22 brand new P-47 Thunderbolts. Major Brookings says, what do you think about that? Stephen Cole drops his head because he knows that the German forces have no opportunity to keep up with the manufacture of their planes. Their ability to produce new planes was done. He says, that is what will defeat us. The power of new will always defeat the enemy. If you don't hear anything else from 1 Corinthians 5, hear Paul saying, step into the power of new. You are a new creation. Live like it. Here's some questions I want you to think about. First one's this. Are you so connected to a church that it would be painful to be separated from it? I hope you are. If not, I'm going to call you, I'm going to invite you to be, even if it's not this church, be tied into one. Second question I have for you is this. Who has permission to speak into your life? And whose life do you need to speak into? Remember, it's personal, but it ain't private. The last one's this. What behaviors, habits, and attitudes are you holding on to from your old self? Where are you trying to drag the grave forward? Because I want you, Paul wants you, and Jesus is inviting you to experience the power of new. Let me pray for you. Father, may we live this out. May we hold on to grace and to truth. And as new creations, may we come together to invite the world that needs to hear this message, not to shame them, but to be recreated. So, Father, whatever we're holding on to from our old lives, help us to let it go in the name of Jesus. Father, if there's some uncomfortable conversations that we need to have, lay those on our hearts and give us the courage. May we open ourselves up to the incredible redemptive and transformative power of grace. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.